Welcome to The Grove. My name's Caleb Brazier. I am one of the pastors here um, at The Grove. We are continuing through our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. So one of the things that marks us as a church is we're expository preachers. What that means is the majority of time here on Sunday mornings, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we're walking through 2 Corinthians uh, right now, and we'll be in chapter 5. On the order of services, verses 1 through 10, we're actually going to be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. And verses one through eight. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapter numbers are the large numbers, the verse numbers are the smaller ones. Uh, and if you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 1025. Um, and if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that with you. That is our gift to you. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses one through eight. Paul here is writing. Paul is uh, one of the apostles commissioned by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to those who are outside of Israel. And as he does it, he goes and plants churches. And as he goes and plants churches. He preaches the gospel, gathers those Christians together, raises up men, places them as elders or pastors over those churches, and then he leaves and does it all over again in another city. And then afterwards, he then is writing letters back to these churches and pastors asking how they're doing, giving them guidance and direction. That's a lot of the New Testament is Paul's letters that he's writing to these churches or to these pastors. So here in 2 Corinthians, this is actually the second letter that we have from Paul to this church in Corinth that he planted as he preached the gospel, saw these people come to faith, and he is walking with them through their imperfect Christian life. And in particular, he's had to battle this idea that's beginning to spread through the church in Corinth, that what it means to be a minister of the gospel, what it means to be a Christian, is to be impressive, to be well-spoken, uh, to come with these letters of recommendation. There were these guys called super apostles, Paul calls them later, that had these uh, commendations with them. And they were great orators, and they could gather a crowd. And, um, and Paul wasn't really a great speaker. He was kind of a, a fuddy-duddy. That's, that was Paul. He wasn't very easy to listen to. And so they began to kind of uh, knock the legs out from underneath Paul, and Paul had to correct them and go, no, the Christian life isn't actually impressive, but the light of the gospel shines the brightest, not through our impressiveness, but through our inability. That God is actually looking for clay jars, not beautiful porcelain pots. God places the treasure in clay vessels into clay jars. This is what he just got done telling them in chapter four. And so then he continues in chapter four in this beautiful picture of how it is then we walk through this world and experience suffering and pain and affliction in this world. Paul expects it. Not only does Paul expect it, but he said, God, it not only then is just sitting back going, I just have to sit on my hands until I return, but Paul helps the church be able to know how to interact with pain. To say, understand that in your pain, God is working in you to be able to renew you day by day, to begin to fashion you and shape you into the image of Jesus and to set in your heart a longing for heaven. But not only is God working in you in affliction, he's also working through you. That it's often through pain and suffering that the gospel shouts the loudest to a watching world. And, and Paul says in, back in chapter four, uh, verse 14, it was so that this grace would extend more and more, to more and more people. The gospel would spread. So God's not work, only working in, but also through you and in pain and suffering. And finally, he also says, not only is pain working in you or through you, but also it is working for you. That this light momentary affliction is producing for you this eternal weight of glory. That somehow the, the pain and suffering we walk through in this world is actually accumulating and preparing for us this weight of glory that we will experience and enjoy for all of eternity, forever. 
And so Paul has just got done giving them this lens and he concludes in verse 18 of chapter four and says, so we don't focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And it's a beautiful verse, but if you read it, you kind of scratch your head because what Paul's saying is, hey, here's, you want to know how to live? Look at what you can't see. Thanks, Paul. Got it. That's super helpful. Focus on the unseen because it's eternal, but not on the scene because it's temporary. And so you got to kind of scratch your head and wonder, Paul, what are you talking about? You're laying out, this is our perspective for the Christian life. How in the world am I supposed to focus on something that I can't see? And that gets us exactly to where we are now in chapter five. Paul's gonna color that in and help explain what he means by focusing on what is unseen and defining what that unseen is and how we're supposed to live in this world. Before we read it, I wanna kind of help color in a little bit of an image that Paul's gonna use. I don't know if any of you guys are campers in the room. If you like to camp, if you like tents, if you like to go in the wilderness and start fires and cook things, uh, fires that are contained, obviously, but uh, if you like to camp, I don't know, maybe you do. I'm not much of a camper. The extent of my, last time I went camping was a number of years ago at a friend's house. We were like 15 yards from their back door. And in the tent, we ran an extension cord out to it, brought a mattress, brought a TV, DVD player and some blankets, watched a movie and went, and when it was done, like, okay, that's enough, we'll go back inside. That's the extent of my camping. But maybe some of you are bigger campers, who knows? And you go, I love getting in the woods. Oh, I could be in there for weeks. Out in the forest, you hear the birds chirp, you wake up when the world wakes up. You get to go out and you hadn't taken a shower in two weeks and you go and you start a fire. There's just something, there's something great about it. You love connecting with nature. Maybe you're the biggest camper in the world. Who knows, maybe you're the opposite of me. But what I can say is that it doesn't matter how much of a camper you are, I can guarantee at some point you're gonna wanna go home. Maybe not after a week, maybe not after two weeks, but after a number of years, <laughs> at some point you're gonna go, you know what, this tent was great, but I'm ready to go home. Maybe a hurricane blows through and you're sitting there in the middle of the woods going, you know what, I would like a better foundation than these poles and cloth. I'd like to get into a house. And it doesn't matter how much you love camping, at some point you will want to go home. Honestly, that's the whole point of this passage. So let's look now in chapter five. Let's read verses one through eight to see what it is Paul is talking to, what this unseen is that we're supposed to look like. Chapter five, verse one, Paul writes this. For we know that if our earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands, Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Since when we've taken it off, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the spirit as a down payment. So we're always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul's writing and he's using this image of living in a tent 
are living in a home. And the question, I just want to ask two questions, uh, and then we'll look at, and see what it is, how Paul answers it. And the questions I want to ask is, what is it that you desire? What are you desiring? And we'll look and try to answer that in verses one through five. And second, asking the question, how are you walking? How are you walking? And Paul gets into this in verses six through eight. So what are you desiring and how are you walking? So first asking the question, what do you desire? What is it that you're desiring in your heart? So Paul begins here and he's trying to explain the unseen in verse one. Look at verse one. He says that we know if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. So the question we have to ask is what's Paul talking about? Is he talking about an actual tent, an actual building that God is up in heaven putting brick by brick together? What's, what's he describing? Well, we see from the context back in chapter four, there's all these contrasts that Paul is giving. You see, earlier he's talking about affliction. He's talking about what is seen. He's talking about it being temporary. He's talking about uh, our outer bodies that are wasting away, that are being destroyed, he says back in 16. So he's talking about our physical bodies here in chapter four. Our physical bodies are wasting away. We all feel this to some extent, right? Whether or not your eyesight is beginning to go, whether or not it's just harder to get out of the bed in the morning, um, whether or not you are now just beginning to go through the natural process of aging, you feel the body wasting away. But then even more seriously, anytime we experience sickness, Anytime we experience dementia, anytime we experience the physical limitations that our bodies have, we feel the truth that our outer body is being destroyed. It's wasting away. So Paul's continuing on then here in chapter five going, that's the tent. This outer body, this affliction that was being uh, brought onto it, this what it's seen, it's all temporary and it's our bodies. He's talking about our physical bodies that are being destroyed. And he said, listen, if our earthly tent is completely destroyed, then we know that we still have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. So Paul's now shifting and going, okay, this earthly tent we live in, that's our body. Our body is a tent right now. It's wasting away. And Paul was a tent maker. So it was a perfect illustration for him. By trade, his vocation was that he made tents. So one of the things he knew about tents is that they were in tents. Moving on, sorry. I, yeah, One of the things that he knew about tents is that they were temporary. They're not meant to last forever. And it's the same with this body as it's being destroyed. It, it's temporary right now. But Paul says, but even if it is destroyed, that's not the end of the story. He says, we actually have a building from God. It's an eternal dwelling in the heavens that's not made with hands. Well, what's he's talking about? He's talking generally about heaven, but even more specifically, staying with this connection. He's talking about the glory, what's coming that's eternal. This eternal dwelling is back referencing, I believe, uh, up in verse 14 of chapter four. He says, Jesus was raised. We also know that he will, we will be raised with him and present us with you. So Paul is describing here what Christians have believed ever since the New Testament, that there will be a physical resurrection of the body. Right? We said it earlier in the Apostles' Creed. It was, it was written in 325 AD, a couple years ago. Christians have been saying it ever since. We believe in the, in the resurrection of the body. That when Jesus returns, that our physical bodies will be then brought back into life and reunited with our spirit. We'll get to that in just a little while. 
But he's saying that that's our eternal dwelling. We will for eternity live in physical, glorified, perfect, sinless bodies. It's physical, it's creative. He's saying that's what is coming. So even if our tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens, not made with hands. He's saying that our future is secure. There's one woman that, um, that I've heard that uh, she had a number of chronic illnesses and doctors couldn't really figure out what it is that she needed. And people would come and ask her and say, what, what is going on? What's happening? And she would respond and go, oh, nothing the resurrection can't fix. Listen, if you're a doctor in here this morning, I love what you do. We need help. But in eternity, you're going to be out of a job. Jesus is going to come as our great physician and heal everything that's ever been broken. And we will then be living in reality and in this physical body for eternity. If you just look at Jesus's resurrection, that body that he had, a physical body, people could touch and see. That's what we will be like. And so there is a physical nature to this that's gonna be glorified. Paul talks about this elsewhere, but he's saying this is the building that's coming. And then he goes on in verse two, he says, so listen, so here's the reality. If our tent here is being destroyed, and even if it is destroyed, we have hope that one day what happened in Christ will happen with us. That's the unwavering hope we have. It's in the resurrection. We look at Jesus and we go, okay, the person and savior that we believe in isn't dead anymore. You won't find another religion that has its leader still alive. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. That tomb is empty. Gandhi is dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Jesus is alive. It is fundamentally different. And when we look at Jesus, we're then able to attach ourselves to him or he attaches himself to us and we are then made to brought into union with him and everything that is his is ours. So we look at his resurrection, that is what is coming for us. So Paul then shifts and goes, "That's that's our theological reality. That even if our tent is destroyed, there is a house that is coming that will last forever. And so he goes to verse two and says, indeed. So here then is our perspective. He says, indeed, we groan in this tent desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. So Paul is really honest and goes, so here's the deal. As you're in this life, as you're living in the tent, it's going to be painful. It's going to be difficult and you're going to groan. And we are here together, groaning together and desiring. That's the word that I want us to see here in these first five verses, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. So Paul is saying that there is a way in which we walk through this life, we feel the brokenness of this world, we acknowledge that it's broken, and we're groaning, but it creates in our heart a desire, a longing then for Jesus to return, a longing to experience that glory, that hope, that heaven that we have. And so where does that desire to be home come from? How can we foster that desire within our hearts? I think the two ways that that desire is fostered in our hearts, one is from the feeling of the brokenness of this tent. And secondly, I think it's from knowing the comfort of our home. So I think that God creates in our heart a desire to be home, one, by just feeling the brokenness of the tent. Listen, again, if you're out in the middle of the woods and all of a sudden a, a storm rolls through and a crack opens up in the top and water starts dripping in, you're gonna sit there in that tent drenched going, okay, I'm ready to get out of here. This tent is broken and I wanna go home. 
Friends, we walk through this world and we feel the pain and the brokenness of this life. And we feel the sting and the the uncomfortability and the affliction that still exists here. That we begin to feel this is not how this was supposed to be. And I'm ready to get home. I feel the brokenness of this tent. That's one of the ways I think God fosters a desire in our hearts. But that's not the only way. I think that there is a way, even if you walk through this life and you go, you know, I haven't necessarily experienced that great of suffering. I think there's still a way for that desire to be fostered. And I think that's from knowing the comfort of your home, knowing what it is you're walking towards, being able to see it and be able to see, oh, that's a lot better than this. And this is what he continues on and, and, and is saying in verse three, he says, we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling since we, when we've taken it off, we will not be found naked. He's talking here about whenever we enter into glory and we stand before our king, this eternal judge, we won't stand exposed and in shame. So referencing, I think back to like Adam and Eve, when they found themselves naked, they were exposed. They stood ashamed in front of their creator. He said, that's not our reality. We will not be found naked because we will be clothed with a righteousness that's not our own. We will be accepted and loved by Jesus, that all those who believe in him will stand covered, not by your own righteousness, but by the righteousness of another that Christ gives to you. And so indeed, he continues in verse four, so we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we don't wanna be unclothed, but clothed. We want our shame and guilt to be covered. We want to be able to stand redeemed and reconciled with our creator, with our father, with our God. And we are longing for the day, the end of verse four, when mortality may be swallowed up by life. Paul is lifting it up to them going, this is what will happen when you get home. Mortality will be swallowed up by life. He's referencing a couple verses here. All the way back into Isaiah, Isaiah 25, eight says this, says that he will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. He will cover them for the Lord has spoken. I love that's just how, that's just how it ends. This is, this is what is going to happen. The Lord has spoken. Death will die. The Lord will wipe away the tears he continues, uh, and I think referencing back also 1 Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 15, verses 54 to 55, says this, as when this corruptible body, this tent, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, whenever it's glorified, when it's perfected, just as Jesus' body was, then this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Paul is looking back at the empty tomb and going, death, listen, I can now speak to you with the confidence of a defeated enemy. I'm not your victor, but I'm with the one who has beaten you. And I am hiding behind the shadow of my king, And I know that there is a day coming when this tent will give way to an eternal dwelling, when this corruptible body will be clothed with incorruptibility, when this mortal body will be clothed with immortality, when death will be destroyed forever and when mortality will be swallowed up by life. Paul is lifting all of that up and going, this is what is coming. 
Jesus will return, destroy death forever, and then our soul will be reunited with our body to live in a glorified physical body and a physical creation, a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity, worshiping and praising our King. Paul's saying, get this into your heart so that no matter how comfortable your life may be, you know it pales in comparison with what is to come. You know the comfort that is coming in your home. And so there is a desire that begins to spring up in you. But listen, I'm convinced part of the reason why we don't desire heaven is because we don't know what the Bible really says that it will be like. I think for a lot of us, it's kind of this vague, fuzzy picture that honestly, we've let the Italian Renaissance painters shape more than the Bible has, what we think heaven will be like. We think there were gonna be uh, these kind of ethereal spirits floating around in the clouds, maybe hanging out with some chubby babies with wings. Maybe we'll have wings, who knows? Maybe halos, but definitely harp music forever on clouds. But listen, I don't know if you're like me, I don't like harp music. And so if that's heaven, that's not really compelling to me. And we kind of don't really talk much about what exactly heaven will be like. For some of you may even go, I did, I, does the Bible say we're gonna have physical bodies and live in a new heaven and new earth? We're not gonna be in the clouds. I think we don't talk about it. Paul's laying out a physical, glorified, and bodily resurrection of all believers. This is what the church has confessed ever since then. And listen, there's a, I can't dive into it because there's a million questions. I'm sure it just popped into your head. Um, but we, we don't talk about heaven well. But I do want to point you to a, a resource that I found to be unbelievably helpful. It's a book. It's a, it's a big book, but it's so, so well written by a guy named Randy Alcorn. And the book is just called Heaven. Pretty straightforward. Heaven by Randy Alcorn. If you have any questions about what heaven's going to be like, about what it is that we should be looking towards, Paul says, focus on this. If it's vague and fuzzy to you and you go, I can't focus on it. I don't even know what it's going to look like. That's a great resource to go to. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Heaven by Randy Alcorn. But this is what Paul is saying here. He's lifting up what is coming when we get home. And he's trying to create in the hearts of everyone there in that church, a desire to be there. So what Paul's saying is that there's this incredible inheritance that's coming our way. Paul's saying, this is what is coming we are now co-heirs with Christ. Everything that is his will be ours. We have this immeasurable riches that are gonna be given to us whenever we get there. Listen, if, if you knew that you were gonna soon receive a fortune in the future, in the near future, wouldn't that change the way that you live today? If you got a letter in the mail when you got home, and you open it up and in it, it said, hey, listen, you don't know me, but I have lots of money and I'm gonna give you $10 million next month. March 1st, check's coming. There's a big party that would go, uh, that, okay, that's not true. What, you need my social security number and then I just get that? Are you friends with the king in Africa that's also told me I'm getting all his money? <laughs> not a chance. There'd be some skepticism. I think that's fair. But what also if within that check or within that letter was a check for $100,000 and said, here's a check to show you I'm good for it. Take it to the bank. There's a lot more coming next month. And you go to the bank, sign the back of it, still kind of unsure, figuring out where the catch is. You go and you deposit it. You look three days later and you find out all of a sudden you have $100,000 more dollars. And you go, wait a second, I think this is real. This guy has kind of shown it with this down payment that the inheritance that's coming is true. 
Well, friends, the inheritance that's on the way for you, the riches of heaven that are there are shown that God is good for it in verse five, that he has prepared this very purpose for us and he's given us the spirit as a down payment. To say, I'll show you I'm good for this. Let me give you my very spirit to indwell within you and that you will, he will then carry you on to completion. You can't do it on your own, but I'm gonna come and do it with you and for you. And God gives us not money, something far greater. He gives us himself as a down payment. And so he's sitting here showing us that he's good for the inheritance because of the down payment that he has given us. And friends, knowing that that fortune is coming to us in the future, it should change the way that we live today. And this is what he gets to now in verses six through eight. And the question that I wanna ask, so what are you desiring? Are you desiring heaven? That's the question. Whether we feel the brokenness and we wanna be there, or if you're in comfort right now, do you see how much better it is to come? But now the next question, how are you walking? How are you living? How does the reality of heaven impact your life today? And so Paul continues now in verse six, he says, so we are always confident And we know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So he's saying here that at any point we're at home with the body, living in this tent, there is a sense in which we are still away from the Lord. Yes, his spirit dwells in us. Yes, Jesus, uh, God and his omnipresence is here, but we just see him dimly right now. There's gonna be a day where we see him face to face. So as long as we're here in this tent, we are away from the Lord. But in the midst of that reality, Paul says we are still confident. Paul just got done talking about groaning and affliction and pain. And he says now we can be confident. How can we be confident? How can we have courage? How can we not lose heart? How can we not give up? How in the world can we take another step in this broken world? Well, because as a follower of Jesus, we don't walk by what we see. We walk by faith and not by sight. This is where Paul continues in verse seven. And verse seven is, you know, it's one of those famous verses in the Bible. And it's famous for a reason. As he says simply, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Friends, that sentence just about sums up the entirety of the Christian life. We walk by faith and not by sight. He continues, we'll come, we'll come back to that because he kind of continues in this fact. He says, in fact, verse eight, we are confident. Again, he's highlighting, there's confidence that we have to be within Christ. He says, we would actually prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So do you hear what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, I know the realities of heaven. I know the glory that's to come. I've seen, it, I've seen it kind of uh, in glimpses and I've seen it in visions and, and I felt the affliction of this world. And guys, I'm gonna be straight with you. I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What Paul's saying is he going, listen, honestly, I would rather die because that means I'd be with Jesus. Paul's not suicidal, but Paul does have a theological understanding of the brokenness of this world and the glory of heaven. And he says this elsewhere, right? In Philippians one, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he did. For Paul, he was so freed from this world. There was nothing that could touch him. It was unbelievable. I love in Philippi, the, 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 in uh, Acts, he was in Philippi, uh, Philippi preaching the gospel. People were being converted. Uh, they needed to stop him, so they went and threw him in prison. And I just love, there's like nothing that, that the world can do to Paul. 
even in prison, he was just praying, singing hymns. There's an earthquake, the, the gates swing open. Paul goes and converts the jailer. So I, I imagine the authorities in Philippi, they're trying to shut him up. We're like, listen, Paul, we, you need you to stop preaching the gospel. And Paul's like, okay, what are you gonna do to me? We're like, well, we're gonna kill you. He's like, great, to die is gain. <laughs> well, okay, well, we'll let you live, to live as Christ. <laughs> well, we're gonna throw you in jail and shut you up. Well, just there's gonna be an earthquake and I'm gonna convert all the jailers. <laughs> there's nothing that could touch Paul. He had such a rock solid understanding and grasp of God's promise. And he said, there's nothing this world can bring me to take away that hope. There's nothing that this world can touch and bring into my life that can remove the faith that I have in the promise of my God. Nothing. And so I can say, you know what? I would rather be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And this is again where Paul is showing us that at any point we die before Jesus returns, we're immediately with Jesus. We're absent from flesh, but present with the Lord. We're away from the, from the body, but present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. That that's the reality. We are instantly with Jesus. That's how Jesus can look at the thief on the cross and go, today you will be with me in paradise. And so there is then this separation as we are present with Jesus and our tent stays here, but then it is still not complete. It's not done. Jesus still has to return. And when he returns, then we are reunited with our physical glorified bodies to live for eternity with him. And so that's what Paul's saying here. This is then my understanding is that while I'm still, still here at home, I'm confident. There's a desire in me to wanna be there, absolutely. But I can still walk with confidence because I am walking by faith and not by sight. And so friends, if there is a desire, if the desire in heaven, for heaven within you this morning comes from your understanding of the brokenness of this world, from your feeling of the brokenness of this world. I hope within this text over the last number of verses that you see, friends, there is good coming. Your home is ahead. John Flavel is a, a Puritan pastor and he wrote this. He said, it is of no small comfort to the saints that this world is the worst place that ever they shall be in. It doesn't remove the pain, but it gives us the courage and confidence to continue to take another step. And friends, this morning, if you go, oh, but I haven't felt the weight of that affliction in this world. I haven't felt the weight of that suffering. My life is okay. Is there any hope for me to desire heaven? Let me tell you, absolutely there is. It's harder, straight up it's harder. One of the byproducts of the ways that God uses suffering is he uses it to dislodge our affection for this world. It's not impossible, but it will be harder. But if your life is okay and you're going, I just don't really desire heaven that much, there is still hope to wanna to go home, for there is a, to be a desire within you to put on that heavenly dwelling. Uh, last September, Leah and I, my wife and I, had the unbelievable opportunity to go to Israel for two weeks. It was just incredible ministry by this man who has this business and makes a lot of money. It's honestly fairly similar to the story I told earlier. We got a phone call that said, hey, you're going to Israel for free. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you just need my social security number and all my kids' names, and then I can just be able to go to Israel for free. Not only that, but you'll stay at great hotels. We're gonna, we're gonna, uh, we're gonna go through uh, unbelievable meals, meals you've never had before. And, and then sure enough, ended up, that's exactly what happened. There's just this man that within his ministry, he wants to be a good steward of what God's given him to be able to reach out and bless pastors of small churches and take them and their wives to Israel and take care of them while they're over there. It was unbelievable. We got to walk through and walk where Jesus walked. 
Um, we got to go over and see the, uh, the unbelievable commercialism that's in Israel. I can't even get to that, but, um, but there were some unbelievable moments. But there also, again, we got to go and eat meals I would never eat. We stayed at hotels I would never stay at. We stayed at one hotel in Jerusalem where you would come back at night, you'd walk in and your bed, the covers of your bed were pulled back a little bit. There were slippers on the floor right next to it and this incredible chocolate just right on your pillow. I had heard of turn down service, but I didn't know, I guess what it was because I'd never experienced that before. They literally prepare that. They want to make it easier for you to get into your bed. We don't want you to have to exert energy to pull back the covers. So let us handle that for you. And here's some slippers and some chocolate. That's the place that we were at. And it was unbelievable. Leah and I had an incredible time. We also didn't have our children whom we love, but it was nice. <laughs> but you know what ended up happening? After about seven, eight days, we started to look at each other and go, oh, you know what? We're ready to get home. We're not gonna, it's not gonna be as nice. It's not even gonna be better food, or, but, but this is great, but man, I'm ready to get home. I'm starting to get homesick. I miss it. I miss what it is that my soul was created to be able to experience. And friends, there's the way in which as you walk through this life, if you're experiencing turn down service in your life right now and you go, you know what, life isn't that bad. There is comfort in this world. Know that there is something better still coming. There is a way to still be homesick in this world. I love um, uh, a Christian singer, Chris Rice, uh, has a song called uh, Too Much I Love This World. It's a beautiful song. It's, it's a little poetic, but at the very end, I love, he says this. He says, too much, I love this world. Right? Again, just walking through, there's this affection that we have, God. It, it feels like I love this world too much and not the next one. So this is his prayer. Too much, I love this world you made, but she echoes better places and homesicks me till we shall see direct with unveiled faces saying that there's a way in which we begin to see even the comfort of this world, even the goodness of this world is just an echo of the goodness to come. And so as you experience the gifts that God gives you, enjoy them. God has given you everything to enjoy, right? So that in first Timothy, you don't have to go through walking through life guilty going, oh, I love my family. I love my job. I love my career. I love the house that I live in. You don't have to feel guilty. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you, but understand that your enjoyment of that gift is just an echo of the enjoyment to come. Allow the, your enjoyment of that gift not to end in the gift itself. To, to, to be people who praise and worship the gift, but we would lift our eyes and praise and worship the giver and see that there's an even better gift to come. That friends, all the goodness in your life is just an echo of the goodness to come. And that it would begin to create in our heart a homesickness to go, oh, I can't wait to get back home. Friends, when people look at you, when people look at your life, people look at your schedules, people look at the way you spend money, people look at the way that you orient your family, is it clear to them that you're homesick? Or are we trying to make ourselves as comfortable as possible here in this world, feeling like this is our home? Because once that clicks into place, once we go, oh my goodness, I'm a foreigner here. I'm a stranger. This place as it is, is not my home. I'm headed home. 
When that clicks in place and we see and believe that, that we are foreigners, that we're just traveling home, everything else then falls into its proper perspective. And we can begin to live a life that smells like another world. We begin to see the way that we should interact with our family, with our stuff, with money, with church, with our schedules. All of that falls into place when we go, I'm not trying to make this place as comfortable as I can. I'm not living and focusing on what is seen. I'm focusing on what is unseen. And we stop trying to crowd our lives into this tent and make it feel like a home because it won't be. It won't. Trying to do that as we try to make this life as comfortable as possible, living like this place is our home. It's like you're traveling somewhere. Say you're moving across country. You've got your U-Haul packed up in the back of your car. You go and you stop. It's a, it's a cross-country trip, so you've got to stop halfway and stay at a hotel. And at the hotel, you get there, you check in, you go and get everything out of the U-Haul, you hang up pictures in the hotel room, you unpack your bags into the, into the, uh, into the room, and you go, here we go. I'm home, got to make it comfortable. We would all look at them and go, listen, here's, here's a number for a counselor. You can go and talk to them because something is off. You're not going to be here that long. Stop trying to make it feel like home. You're headed home. Friends, for us in this world, as we try to grab things in this life and look to them, feeling like they are the end in and of themselves, we try to make this place feel like home and we are no different than unpacking our entire lives in a hotel room. This life is a tent and we're headed home. And the way then in which people look at our lives and begin to go, oh, they're homesick. It begins to change the way we live our lives. People look and go, how in the world can you give money away? How can you be generous? How can you give to a church or give to a missionary or give to someone in need? Shouldn't you take all that money and store it up for your retirement? Shouldn't you take that money and spend it on stuff you like? Don't give it away. How can you be generous? Goodness, just fudge on your taxes a little bit to get a little bit extra refund to put you in different tax credit so you can pay for the astronomical price of Disney passes. Just change it a little bit because you need that money here and you can look and go, yeah, but this place isn't my home. People look and go, how do you not give in to the desires or passions that you have? There's temptation that's pulling you towards something. Just go and enjoy it. Goodness, stop saying no to it. How in the world are you saying no to this pull that you have? Listen, I know there's people here in our church who are struggling and battling with same-sex attraction. And I know that's something the church has historically gone, we don't need to talk about this. And I know that there are people here that probably feel like they can't be open about that. But friends, you can be. And I know the people here who are battling it and are going, no, I'm going to walk not what I feel like, but what God has called me to. And people look and go, how in the world could you make a choice like that? And you can look and go, because this place is not my home. I'm headed home. Why would you prioritize the spiritual growth of your family over the athletic or academic growth in your family? Make your calendars center around sports and, uh, and um, academics. And you go, no, we're gonna make our spiritual growth a priority. We're gonna be at church, we're gonna be involved here because we believe not that coming to church makes us righteous in any way, but we see and encounter Jesus in a way that's different in that community than on our own. People go, why would you do that? You can say, because this place isn't our home. And people look and go, how in the world can you walk through unimaginable pain, still praising God and holding out some kind of hope how in the world can you do that? And you can look and go, because this place is not my home. 
Do you see this perspective changes the way that we interact with every step that we take in life? We don't walk by what we can see. We walk by faith, believing that God will do what he said that he would do. I love, that's the baseline definition of faith that I like to, that I like to say, right? The often Romans, I mean, Hebrews 11:1 1 gets quoted. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. It's a beautiful phrase, but I don't really know what it means. So I like this one better in Romans 4. Romans 4.19 points to Abraham and talks about Abraham's promise that he received from God that he was going to have a child. And this is what Romans 4 says about Abraham. It says that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his body to be already dead. He was about 100 years old. So understand, 100-year-old dude, God says, hey, you're going to have a kid. But Abraham didn't weaken in his faith. Not only was he old, but his wife was old. Also the deadness of Sarah's womb, his wife. No, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Why? Because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Friends, that's faith. Knowing what God has promised and then believing that he will do it. And you hear the twofold nature of that. Knowing what God has promised but then believing that he will do it. So what faith is not is just like, you know what, if I just believe something hard enough, God will give it to me. I'm gonna have faith that I'm gonna win the lottery tomorrow. Oh, I'm gonna believe, I'm gonna really believe it. I'm gonna have lots of faith and that faith is gonna come about depending on how much I feel it. Listen, you can go buy all the lottery tickets in the world tomorrow, you ain't gonna win the lottery. That's not faith, God hasn't promised that. No, faith is knowing what God has promised. Abraham held on to his promise. For us, we pour through his word, looking for every promise that's there, pulling out, going, okay, God, you promised this. And what faith is, it goes, despite the circumstances around us that feel like it makes this promise null and void, we're gonna hold on to it, believing that God's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Abraham looked at his circumstances and there was no way that he could have a kid. He was 100 years old. But he said, but I know that God promised. My father said, faith is knowing what God has promised and then believing that he will do it. Looking at it another way then, how that interacts with all of our everyday life, faith is trusting God in all of the small acts of obedience in your life with this undercurrent of knowing that heaven is our home. Friends, whenever we know that, it begins to influence every act of obedience in our life. It shapes our faith completely with this undercurrent of knowing heaven is our home and that we are foreigners here. That's the way that our faith should feel. I love it, the, then the description of faith in Hebrews 11, right? You have that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of not yet seen. Then the rest of 11 just goes through the heroes of faith. It's the hall of faith, just person after person. Here's their example of faith, their example of faith, their example of faith. Abraham's in there, Sarah, Abel, all these people. But I love, there's this small paragraph in there that gets overlooked sometimes and it's describing the nature of their faith in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. And listen to the way that faith is influenced by un, our understanding that we're foreigners. Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says this, that these all died in faith, all these heroes in faith, although they had not received the things that they were promised. So not only did their circumstances not seem like they were gonna get it, they actually didn't receive the, some of the things that were promised to them, but they saw the promises from a distance. They greeted them and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. 
they knew that they were just living in a tent and they knew that they were headed home and they saw their promises at a distance. They were focusing on things that were unseen. Continues on and says this, now those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. For if they were thinking about where they came from, they would have uh, had the opportunity to return. But now they desire a better place. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, an eternal dwelling, a home. And these people said, no, I'm going to believe this. This place is not my home. And what faith looks like then, understanding that reality, that I'm headed home. I'm not here right now. This place is the wilderness. This is broken and damaged and wrong. This is not my home. I'm a foreigner, pilgrim, and exile here. I'm headed home. And I know that as I head home, faith then begins to make our lives look drastically different from those around us. Faith, what faith does, you look at that chapter in 11, faith builds a crib when you're 100 years old. Faith builds an ark when it's never rained a drop on earth before. Faith walks forward and believes that God is going to do exactly what it is that he promised. So friends, for us in our life, as we begin to hopefully shift and begin to see, God, this is true of us. We need to remind ourselves of this every day because what I can tell you is that the place that we live right now in America may be the hardest place to be able to live this truth out because everything in the culture is gonna try to make this place feel like home. That's that's the heart of consumerism. We want you to be as comfortable as possible. Here's the new iPhone. Everything's gonna be coming at you and we have to remind ourselves of this every single day. Goodness, remind yourself of, say these things to yourself every morning when you get out of bed. God is my father. Heaven is my home. I am a child of God and I am a pilgrim here. I'm just traveling home and I will live like that is true. God is my father. Heaven is my home. I'm a child of God and I'm a citizen of heaven. I am a foreigner here and I'm just traveling home and I will live like that is true. Say that every single day and then begin to live like that is true. So friends, don't get too comfortable in your tent because there's a house that's coming. And some of you may be worried going, well, when I get there, isn't it gonna be like dusty and kind of creaky and old? If it's just been there for eternity, when I get to the house, how's it gonna be? I I love this. John 14, two, Jesus is about to be crucified. Last night with his disciples, he looks at them in the eyes and he says this. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you so. So I am going away to prepare a place for you. Friends, Jesus right now is in heaven beside the Father, interceding for us, but also in some way, he's preparing your house. He's making sure the rooms are swept, putting the pictures up, and he's getting the table ready for the feast, for that great supper that's coming in Revelation 19. This picture that we get when we get to heaven and there will be this table that is there. 
And friends, when that happens, Jesus returns and he brings us home. He will sit all of his church around that table and the promise of Isaiah 25, the promise of 1 Corinthians 15, the promise of 2 Corinthians 5 will be made visible and our faith will then be made sight. And what we saw dimly here, we will see face to face and we will experience with all of the saints that have ever lived around the entire world from every tribe, tongue and nation. Finally, we will be home and there will be no tears and there will be everlasting joy. That's what we're walking to. And Jesus is getting the table ready.